Hello, and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor. And I'm Jim Townsend. And we're so glad you can join us. We are recording today at the same time that President Biden is sitting down with Ukrainian President Zelensky. President Zelensky has long coveted a White House visit, and this will be his first meeting with an American president. The meeting takes place against a backdrop, however, of some tension in the relationship. Despite much optimism in Ukraine about President Biden and his longstanding support for Ukraine, Washington's decision not to block the controversial Nord Stream 2 pipeline came as a major disappointment. For Biden, I think the aim of the meeting is to demonstrate the seriousness of the U.S. commitment to Ukraine and the country's sovereignty and territorial integrity in the face of Russian Russian aggression. Um, And while this pledge of support is welcome on the Ukrainian side, there will doubtlessly remain calls for the United States and Europe to do even more to support Ukraine, including on the ever-present question of NATO membership. So today we wanted to use this White House visit to talk about where things stand in U.S.-Ukraine relations and where they should go from here. And to do that, we're really excited to welcome Melinda Herring and Ambassador Sandy Vershbaugh to the podcast. Melinda Herring is Deputy Director of the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Previously, she was the editor of the Atlantic Council's popular publication, The Ukraine Alert Blog. She's also worked for the Eurasia Foundation, Freedom House, and the National Democratic Institute, where she managed democracy assistance programs in Azerbaijan, Georgia, and Russia. And Ambassador Vershbau is a distinguished fellow at the Atlantic Council's Scowcroft Center for Strategy and Security at the Eurasia Center. He was the Deputy Secretary General for NATO from February 2012 to October 2016. And prior to his post at NATO, Ambassador Vershbau served for three years as the U.S. Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Affairs. Okay, so I want to start where we often start these podcasts, which is kind of taking a step back and doing a little scene setting ahead of the meeting. And I wonder if I can just hear a little bit from both of you, um, your views on your characterization of the state of U.S.-Ukraine relations going into this meeting. Kind of what have you seen so far about Biden's approach to Ukraine? How would you characterize that? Uh, and, and maybe you know hear a little bit about some of the tensions that have characterized the relationship as, as of late, some of that baggage maybe that's going into this meeting. So um, Melinda, why don't we start with you and then Sandy, you feel free to jump in. Sure, thanks for the opportunity to be here, Andrea and Jim. So there is a lot going into this meeting. I think that's probably an understatement. Zelensky has been coveting this meeting for years, as you mentioned. Uh, And part of it is to show that he is an international leader. Uh, He's a man of enormous ambition. He's in his early 40s. This is his first political job. Uh, He wants that symbolic photo op of him in the Oval Office. It's not just about symbolism, though. He is looking for security guarantees. We we know that. We know that's at the top of the list. Uh, And and President Biden, uh, well, look, the Ukrainians thought that they were going to get lucky when President Biden uh, was elected. And they thought, thank God, it's a chance to to turn a new leaf and to start things over again. I think they're disappointed, though, that President Biden hasn't given them very much attention. Uh, You know, there's a number of disagreements, including uh, the administration's decision on the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Um, But frankly, the Ukrainians haven't gotten very much attention. And uh, the Biden administration has been pretty soft on Russia. So I I think that this is an opportunity to sit down, look at each other face to face, and try to iron out some of those differences and to reestablish a, a working relationship after 
uh, the, the taint and the tarnish of the Trump era. Andy, anything you want to add there? Yeah, I, I agree with uh, what Melinda has said. Uh, clearly, there was an expectation that Biden was going to be like the dream president from the Ukrainian point of view, uh, the antithesis of Trump. Uh, that was a low bar because of you know, Trump trying to extort a Ukrainian president. Uh, any successor would have a, have a positive reception. Uh, but it did turn out to be a little bit more complicated. Uh, I, I agree with Melinda that the, the lack of attention early on was surprising, uh, given that Biden saw himself as sort of the world's foremost authority on Ukraine, having been there many times uh, as vice president and having uh, stood up for Ukraine's sovereignty and independence in every possible forum. Uh, but getting this meeting proved to be much more difficult. Biden decided he was going to see Putin as part of the trip for the NATO summit and the G7 uh, uh, and didn't uh, see fit to fit in a stop in Kiev or even a meeting uh, with Zelensky, which would be normally the thing to consult with the victim of aggression before you talk to the aggressor. Uh, and uh, then there was the, the big surprise over Nord Stream 2 in which the administration decided to put German-American relations ahead of uh, US-Ukraine relations and Ukraine security. Uh, so suddenly this, this meeting took on a lot more drama than one would have expected a few months ago. Uh, and it became something of a kind of a repair job uh, to put the relationship uh, back on track uh, to show that the US is, is still a reliable ally uh, in defending Ukraine. Uh, and with the added doubts that had been created by the, uh, shall we say, uh, unfortunate way that the, the Afghanistan operation came to an end, which has raised questions worldwide about US willingness to, uh, to stand by, by its allies. So with all those uh, issues at stake, uh, it looks like the meeting may, may have been successful, at least in terms of repairing the relationship. Uh, the interagency, and the Ukrainian side clearly worked very hard to put together what is truly a long and impressive list of deliverables uh, to back up this message that the US is a reliable ally standing by Ukraine. Uh, there's a big package of new military assistance and uh, a strategic defense framework uh, and a lot of other things which we can go through if you wish uh, in, in our discussion. Uh, in terms of uh, reviving the Strategic Partnership Commission, energy cooperation, climate change, space cooperation, uh, investment guarantees, efforts to promote innovation. Uh, it's an impressive list. Uh, but personally, I still have uh, questions about whether, whether what the administration has put on the table in the defense and security area is enough, uh, given that Russia too is questioning US reliability. It's, uh, of course, riding on the uh, heels of Putin's pseudo history lesson, which is kind of a justification for new warfare against Ukraine. Uh, and many other factors could argue for, uh, in my view, a much more substantial effort to bolster deterrence by greater support for Ukraine, including greater support for its NATO aspirations. Uh, but uh, but at least you know there's a lot of lot of positive deliverables uh, on which to build, and I hope that uh, Ukrainians uh, take advantage of that because uh, while they may have been disappointed with Biden, there's been disappointment with Zelensky. Let's not 
forget that. He backtracked many times on reforms. He sacked his whole reformist first cabinet just a few months after taking office. And there's been continuous one step forward, two steps back on the reform and uh, rule of law front. So uh, US has reason to be impatient with Ukrainians as much as they may have had their doubts about the US. Did you want to add in there, Melinda? Yeah, sure. I, I think Sandy's right, Andre and Jim. I, you know, it's great that the U.S. is increasing military assistance by 60 million and giving more anti-tank missiles. That's really a drop in the bucket. I mean, if you're right, especially after what happened in Afghanistan over the last two weeks, if you're trying to reassure an ally, you need to put some real money on the table. Yesterday, President Zelensky spoke at Mount Vernon in Virginia, and he gave a a, a very large talk. He talked about defense. He talked about energy. Uh, he talked about a number of issues, and he says that Ukraine needs to spend at least $22 billion in order to rebuild its Black Sea fleet and enhance its missile defense program. $22 billion is a huge number. You know, $60 million is, is very, very little. And honestly, Ukraine is very vulnerable in the Black Sea, uh, and its Navy is a disaster. It, it's very, very small, and uh, we know that the Russians are very involved there. They've put ships there. Uh, they've made all sorts of accusations and uh, serious defense analysts in Ukraine think that that's probably what the next place that, that Russia will up the ante. You guys have just put a tremendous amount on the table and we're going to probably bite off pieces, Afghanistan, some of the deliverables, whether or not it's enough. But before I do that, I wanted to just pull on one string, which was both something that you both mentioned, which is Ukraine hasn't received enough, enough attention from the Biden administration. I think that I certainly that is what I've heard from Ukrainian interlocutors, a lot of concern and, you know, upsetness about the lack of attention that they've gotten. The dueling narrative, though, that comes from the White House, of course, is though that they've actually gotten quite a lot of high level attention early on that you know that there's had previously already been two calls between President Biden and President Zelensky that Blinken went out in May that Granholm went to Kiev for the Crimean platform earlier this month you know that Yermak and Kuleva were here ahead of the meeting and met with Blinken so when you kind of given all that the United States is dealing with at the same time that actually Ukraine has received quite a lot of high level attention you know, Zelensky will be just the second European leader who's getting a White House visit after Merkel. Um, so, you know, I, just to hear your views on like, how how, sh how should this administration think about right-sizing the Ukraine challenge, given obviously all of these competing priorities? It is clearly something that's important to the administration, but I hear, I get a sense from you that it, that maybe it's not enough. And so maybe we can use that as a launching point into kind of you know, where you think it should go from here. Um, you know, what, what are some of the things that you think the United States can do more effectively to support Ukraine's territorial integrity, democratic reforms, um, its, you know, Euro-Atlantic aspirations? Are there some things that you think we could be doing more of that you're not seeing yet? Is that a one question or 10? It's <laughs> about 10 questions. <laughs> Definitely. Andy, do you want to go first? Go ahead, Sandy. Uh, okay, let me uh, jump in and try to address at least a few of those questions. First of all, on whether they got enough attention. To, of course, no friend or ally thinks they get enough attention from the United States. And even when I worked on the NSC staff, uh, I always felt that my clients from Europe weren't getting as much attention as they deserve. But you know, presidents are busy people. And... Uh, 
you, you can't satisfy all the people all the time. Um, but I think the bigger concern I, I have, and I think the Ukrainians had, was sort of some of the vacillation on certain key substantive areas, which raised questions about just how committed was the United States to Ukraine's security. Uh, and that's only been magnified by the questions uh, in that regard after uh, what happened in Afghanistan, fueled by uh, odious characters like the, the Russian National Security Advisor, Mr. Patrushev, uh, pointing out that uh, being a major non-NATO ally didn't save Afghanistan, so the Ukrainians better draw the appropriate conclusions and, you know, and knuckle under to uh, Russian domination. So uh, the stakes have, have risen because of Afghanistan, because of the Nord Stream 2 decision, I think because of uh, the fact that Biden did clearly show uh, that he attached higher priority to the Russia relationship than to the Ukraine relationship, which in one sense is, of course, a natural Russia's superpower that it can annihilate us. But Ukraine's security and its independence is kind of the critical, pivotal issue for the continuation of the rules-based international order, to use the, the favorite buzzword. If Ukraine succumbs to Russian subversion and domination, uh, the whole nature of security in Europe changes and Russia becomes an empire again and it becomes a much bigger challenge than it already is. So uh, so I think that, that that maybe wasn't fully appreciated. Yes, Blinken did go to, to Kiev in May. Uh, there were other visits. Uh, the overall bilateral military assistance is, is in, in impressive, 400 million plus today's 60. Uh, but it, I think there's reasons for for the Ukrainians to worry that Russia doesn't think the US, if push comes to shove, will stand by Ukraine in, in, a, in a real crisis. And of course, the Russians are still postured for military aggression. Their buildup in the spring was only partially pulled back. The equipment stayed. They're now very visible in how quickly they can mobilize the manpower to, to go with that equipment. Uh, so for, for, for that reason alone, uh, I think that Ukraine's had, had legitimate reason to, to hope for a bit more uh, on defense assistance. But I think the other thing where Biden has been very cautious, and it's not a total surprise, but uh, I think uh, I, I, I had hoped that he would be a little bit more ready to push the envelope. This is on Ukraine's relationship with NATO. Uh, not, to, uh, not, not to fight a battle with, within NATO over the membership action plan, which is really so not the central issue. As a membership action plan, well, it's symbolic. It doesn't give the Ukrainians any mechanisms or tools that they don't already have uh, for developing compatibility with NATO. Uh, but Putin in recent months has drawn red lines, both on NATO membership for Ukraine and even on NATO presence in Ukraine, which uh, has not really been answered. And I would have hoped that in addition to all these different elements in the defense framework, the strategic defense framework that uh, Lloyd Austin and uh, Minister Tehran signed yesterday, uh, that the US would lean a little bit farther forward on rejecting the Russian red line, insisting that Russia has no veto over Ukraine or any other country's aspirations to join NATO. And uh, to put some skin in the game perhaps by uh, announcing their plans to rotate troops in and out of Ukraine, both on land and at sea, uh, and hopefully getting allies to do the same, because this shouldn't be just a US exercise. Uh, uh, 
we have a joint training and evaluation center in Georgia, but NATO doesn't have anything comparable to that in Ukraine. So I think ways of showing without without implying a security guarantee that you know Article Five can't be can't be replicated. Either you have it or you don't. Uh, but we're still kind of pushing back on Putin's drawing of red lines, uh, in addition to tangible assistance to increase Ukraine's defense uh, capabilities. Uh, for me, would have been a more satisfying outcome than, uh, than at least what we have seen so far from the deliverables. So this is a hard question to answer because it, it, I, I see it from different angles. So from Zelensky, this is a lot of it's about ego. He wanted a White House visit, uh, like I said, because he wants to be seen as this great international leader. Uh, we know that he craves that kind of attention. Uh, so his administration and all of his people were pushing for months and months. I, I think though that Biden owed him uh, a, a visit to clear the air after everything that happened with the Trump administration. You um, outlined a number of meetings and phone calls that happened, but let's go back to Sandy's point. Uh, it wouldn't have taken much effort for Biden to meet Zelensky before meeting Putin. And that matters symbolically that we're in the seventh year of the war uh, that Russia started. And basically everyone except Eastern Europe has forgotten about this war. It's hardly ever written about in any major newspaper. Uh, it wouldn't have taken the Biden administration much effort at all to, to, to make that happen. So uh, from a, a Ukrainian perspective, I understand why they were disappointed and I understand uh, why they desperately wanted this meeting uh, to get rid of uh, the stench of the, the uh, Trump administration. Uh, but when you look at the White House's uh, interim national security uh, strategic guidance that it issued in March, 2021, I don't think the Ukrainians should be very surprised that they're not getting much love. If you look at how many times Russia and China are mentioned, so it's a three to one relationship. So uh, Russia, you know, Russia- We counted that too. We, What's we, that? we counted the mentions too, yeah. <laughs> I, I, th I think it's 15 to five if I remember uh, correctly. So it's a three to one relationship. I don't think Ukraine is mentioned at all in the document, but it's clear that this administration is focused on, on China, climate change and COVID. Uh, and the attitude that I see is that they want to ignore Russia. They want to put it in a box. They wanted to have a meeting and they wanted the problem to go away. Well, I'm sorry, it doesn't work that way. You can't just ignore problems because they're inconvenient, uncomfortable, or you're just really sick of Vladimir Putin. Uh, that's just not going to work. So uh, I, I think Ukraine, I'm hoping that they're going to realize that uh, this administration is not focused on Eastern Europe, it's not focused on Russia, and find more uh, convincing ways to make arguments. Uh, because right now, the arguments they're making are not working. Uh, this is an administration uh, that is realist in nature, and the old sort of humanitarian arguments for why Ukraine deserves additional assistance are not going to work uh, with the Biden administration. So that, that, that's, uh, I'm hoping that uh, they learn a few things um, from their interactions uh, here in Washington. I agree with you uh, definitely about kind of early attitudes of the Biden administration kind of wanting to look past the, the Russia problem set. I think the one thing that maybe changed that calculus slightly was the Russian military buildup on the border of Ukraine. And I think that was a, a major kind of reset, wake up call reminder that even if you want to deprioritize Russia, that Putin is going to try to affect where he falls on the U.S. foreign policy list. And then, of course, you had the, the summit that came directly out of that. You have the cyber dialogue, strategic stability dialogue. So I think there's been a little bit of right sizing, but I agree it's not yet enough. And there still is a temptation not to focus on Russia, Eastern Ukraine, because they'd rather be doing other things. So I think there was a little correction there um, after that. 
But it raises the question, you know, so one of, Melinda, you also kind of talked about the, the crisis that really has fallen off of anyone's radar. It's no longer talked about. I, I, I hear, I get the sense that the Biden administration is considering whether or not they'd like to play a more active role in the conflict resolution process, you know, potentially as joining as in a Normandy four plus kind of format where they could kind of try to revitalize what is now a relatively stalled moribund process. Do you all think that's, well, two part question. One, what do you think Ukraine's preference is? I think they're asking for the United States to play a greater role in that process, but have they outlined what you know they would envision wanting the United States role to be? So that's from the Ukrainians' perspective. What do you what do you think they want the United States to do? And then the second question is just in your opinion, would that be a good idea? Do you think the United States should step in and try to re-energize this process? Let me let me go first on that. I, I have been a long advocate of a stronger US role in, in the diplomacy over Donbass. And I, I'm even more convinced now because I think the longer this drags on and the Russians right now are dragging out the talks uh, either to get the Ukrainians to capitulate in terms of you know, dealing directly with the separatists and accepting a kind of uh, state within a state that would be a permanent uh, uh, constraint on genuine sovereignty for Ukraine. Uh, I, I think that uh, U.S. has to get more involved diplomatically to kind of push for a, a solution before things get completely frozen for, for a long time to come. Part of that is, you know, peace through strength. You do need to strengthen the Ukraine uh, armed forces uh, and their deterrent capacity so that the Russians don't uh, get complacent, think that they can just prolong the deadlock, continue to kill Ukrainians every week. Uh, but make them pay a higher cost, uh, not just for the further aggression, but even for the continued uh, occupation. Uh, but then put some muscle into the diplomacy by uh, at least adding the U.S. to the mix. And it doesn't have to be any one particular format. It could be an expanded Normandy. It could be U.S. acting in parallel, uh, as was the case with uh, Toria Newland in the Obama administration and Kurt Volker. Uh, in the Trump administration. Uh, but the Russians aren't going to take, to be honest, Berlin or Paris all that seriously uh, when they know that uh, there's this hankering for detente at every, every, at every turn. Uh, so uh, uh, Zelensky indicated before the visit that he was going to push for this. Uh, I have the, the feeling the administration is uh, dithering on this question, in part because key personnel haven't been confirmed. But I think they're dithering because they're not sure they want to invest that much political capital uh, because of the priority to China. Uh, they may just want to defuse tensions rather than solve the problem. And that, uh, as I was saying earlier, kind of undermines the whole European security system. It's not just uh, uh, you know, cost-free uh, delaying tactics. Uh, so uh, strengthening the Ukrainian side militarily uh, taking a more aggressive diplomatic stance, including a readiness to raise the uh, the ante on sanctions significantly, if the Russians just continue to prolong uh, the negotiations and pretend to negotiate, because uh, the, the sanctions have held for seven years. That's a that's a marvelous thing, and European unity has held. And nobody would have predicted that, but the sanctions haven't been enough to change Putin's calculus. So, so 
we have to kind of go to the Europeans and say, we have to tighten the screws. We need to arm the Ukrainians and you need to help us on that. And then we need a much more aggressive diplomacy to try to actually end this, which would be a first for the frozen conflicts. The only one that's so sort of ended is Nagorno-Karabakh and not because of Russian good faith in the negotiations. Andrea, Sandy's totally right. The longer we wait and the longer we do nothing and let the uh, useless Normandy format drag on, the more this benefits Vladimir Putin. And you can see this from any of the, the history of the frozen conflicts. Uh, it's not in the newspaper. Normal people don't know what's going on. The US uh, can't be compelled to get involved. And honestly, I understand why the Biden administration doesn't want to touch this. This is an intractable problem. No one knows how to solve it and how to get out of it. Uh, Vladimir Putin's really, really good at, at just dragging these things out. Uh, I thought for a long time that uh, Putin had Ukraine exactly where he wanted it. He controlled you know, a huge swath of Eastern Ukraine. He controls Crimea. He has, uh, he has agents uh, you know, in, in Kiev. He has huge influence in parliament. He has influence in the SBU. He can up things whenever he wants. I'm not sure that's true though. And I, I think that the, um, the, the conflict that we saw, the increase of Russian troops shows that Putin's not uh, satisfied, uh, that he's not going to, to just sit there and, and let the frozen conflict um, you know, simmer on. Um, and that he will continue uh, to pry and to push. Uh, and that the, the, the long-winded essay he wrote about Ukraine uh, shows that, that um, he will basically do anything he can uh, to ensure that Ukraine is does not become a sovereign uh, European country. So we know with Zelensky, he said last night that he wants to find ways to block the Normandy format. They don't like the Normandy format. They're unsatisfied with it. They want U.S. leadership. They want a way to reinvigorate it. I don't, I'm not convinced that the special representative job that we had there before actually did anything. Yes, it's good to talk. I think we need to be more creative and think of some new ways uh, to, to change things, uh, to reinvigorate these dialogues, figure out what the Russians uh, would be willing to consider. So uh, I, I think that we have been staring at this problem for uh, seven years um, and no one has any new interesting thinking. So it's, it's time to do some of that thinking and try to find a, a way out uh, that would satisfy uh, both sides. You know, it seems, oh, go ahead, Sandy, were you gonna say something? I'm just gonna say, I agree with what Melinda said. Uh, at the same time, the format or even the negotiating uh, ideas that might be put on the table are secondary to convincing Putin that time is not on his side. If he makes the political decision to cut a deal, then it won't be so hard to, to find one. There's been a lot of good, good Good papers written, uh, track two processes you know, have produced many different plans, which even Russians thought were workable, but Putin basically was not interested in solving this. So it comes back to the leverage, whether it's you know, through the sanctions, through military pressure, diplomatic isolation. Uh, and, and we have to think of carrots as well as sticks, to be frank. Uh, but we have to convince Putin that it's better to cut a deal now than just keep prolonging this for years and years to come. But, you know, it seems that uh, that along those lines in terms of convincing Putin that this is, you know, now is time to make a deal. You know, that that at the same time, from what you all are saying, and I agree, there's no there's no uh, push in the White House to, to take this on at all. You know, as Melinda, I think you said, no one wants to touch it. And so there's not even an advocate, it seems, within. Correct. Uh, the higher reaches of the interagency or the close Biden administration, um, and not just on on Ukraine uh, or on Russia, but on Europe more broadly, quite frankly. 
there's been you know a lot of rhetoric, uh, but we've been watching very closely to see the substance behind the rhetoric, the ideas, you know, the uh, the the stake and not just the sizzle. Uh, and uh, and we haven't seen it, and it's been a while now. And I, you know, even the summits that they had uh, with the EU and with NATO and with the G7, there were, particularly with the EU, lots of working groups and lots of uh, intent in the communique. Uh, so there's a lot of rhetoric, but boy, there is not a lot of substance. And so it just seems to me until there's a uh, a real advocate who can convince the Biden administration to take hold of this problem. Uh, I just don't see any movement at all. And I don't, and, and I agree that a lot of the positions aren't filled yet uh, in the administration, but I think even when, once they're filled, I just can't imagine someone coming in who's gonna be really burning hot to take this on. Uh, and I just think that's, I don't know, that's such a pity. Uh, do you see it something like that? Absolutely. I, I don't know who the, the, the Ukraine person is within the National Security Council or the State Department. There's no advocate. And even if I can look a little broader, uh, when Svetlana Tikhonovskaya, the Belarusian opposition leader, came to town, Biden wasn't going to meet with her. It took a lot. I mean, if you look at the visit, at the end of the first week, uh, she, he, Biden had not met with Tikhonovskaya, and it was a no-brainer. Uh, and at the end of the week, the visit was, it was great. They met with lots of congressional people. They, they you know, were in the newspapers again, uh, but they really needed that meeting. Uh, and it took a lot of uh, arm wrestling and behind the scenes uh, pressure to get the president to agree to the meeting. Why? I don't get it. Yeah. Well, let me ask you all, oh, Sandy, go ahead. And then I'll-, I'll and Just a footnote to that, absolutely right. Uh, it, it worked out particularly well in them because the Russians were gloating for days that he wasn't going to meet with us when he did it was kind of the wrong footed the russian propagandist but that's a, <laughs> not a good basis for policy oh, that's exactly right <laughs> well you know one thing to think about too and sandy this is something based on what you said it was it was you know that the u.s needs to go to the europeans and try to you know lead them as well towards you know making changes to the normandy process to trying to improve uh, how we we uh, we as transatlantic allies how we take on this issue and try to revive the the process but i'm wondering now post yeah uh, post uh, Kabul, when the relationship between a lot of european nations and the u.s has really soured um in a in a uh in a tremendous way um if you include on that as well the, the four years of trump i'm not so sure the u.s going to europe is going to be a real successful in getting them to follow us anywhere right now. I'm, I'm wondering if that's going to be another hindrance, just, uh, you know, uh, assuming for the moment that, yes, the White House wants to do this, the White House wants to go in and be, take part in the process and wants to move it. I'm wondering uh, what kind of reception we would get uh, by a lot of European allies who might be a little reluctant to jump into something behind the United States uh, because of some, you know, mis misgivings and, and, and sour feelings from the last number of years, including what's just happened in Kabul. Yeah. No, I share the concerns. This is not a good time for us to be asking Europeans to do more. Although one implication of what has happened in Afghanistan is the, you know, a clear demonstration of the weakness of the Europeans and their inability to exert themselves and have influence within the transatlantic uh, framework, whether it's USEU or, or NATO. Right. Uh, so they should you know, see this as a wake up call. Right. And you know, if we come to them, okay, let's, let's reinvigorate our approach to Ukraine, uh, see that as an opportunity 
to shape the strategy, not just kind of to follow uh, blindly in whatever new new scheme we come up with, uh, but to shape it together. Maybe we need a, a contact group or something like that, which did work in the Balkans it sure did. back in the day. Yeah. Uh, and has worked in some other regional conflicts uh, around the world, uh, in which there's a sense of co-responsibility. Uh, but I think just sticking with the Normandy format is, is, is a loser. Uh, we need to shake things up in some way. Uh, but the kind of lacking anybody in the in the administration or few, very few people in the administration would want to do this is, is a more fundamental problem, as we were just saying. Melinda. Yeah, one of the things, Jim, I noticed in the, the readout that came out of the White House from the National Security Council call on Monday about Ukraine and what to expect, there were a couple of weird things that, that sort of jumped out at me. And uh, I have to give my friend Todd Prince at RFERL uh, credit for, for uh, showing me these. Um, the first thing is uh, it claims that the U.S.-Ukrainian relationship has never been stronger. Uh, you know, maybe that's like a control F thing that goes in all of these national security documents, but that's a crazy claim. Like, it, it, that doesn't make sense. The relationship is hopefully going to be stronger, but uh, the visit hasn't happened. The two gentlemen haven't met each other. Uh, we're still getting over the Trump era. So that was weird. Um, it also talks about, so there's... Um, uh, certain sections in it. The first section is defense and everything looks normal and good there, you know, except for the figures a little too small for my taste and for Sandy's taste. Uh, second section is on the reform side. And this section's weird. And I'm not sure if it's just because the people at the White House are not super involved in the details in Ukraine or if they're looking for an excuse to do nothing. So they talk about the big things, which is uh, which are judicial reform and, and protecting anti-corruption institutions. Awesome. Those that that's you know that's good. But they also mentioned they want to see um, steps to our steps on legislation on human rights. Uh, I don't know what that means. It, that's a weird thing to say. Uh, Ukraine doesn't really have a problem with human rights. I mean, you could you could say that they haven't done enough to protect uh, minorities. I think that's an argument. But this is not a top issue. The top issue is there is no FDI in Ukraine, and the courts don't work. Uh, so I don't know why the White House is, is distracted with that. There's also a large section on, on uh, climate change. That's not the top issue in Ukraine. So I, I think this um, NSC statement that came out it, um, could use some editing. Those are all good points. And having listened to the call, yeah, seeing human rights jump out and kind of they in the call, they highlighted things like protection of the Roma community and LGBTQ and things like that. So I think that's where that was headed. But again, I agree, there's probably five things that you would put on the agenda before that. But it, yeah. maybe just use that as a pivot um, to talk a little bit about, so there's obviously a lot the United States could be doing differently. We've talked about it. But what about on the Ukrainian side? Um, you know, there are things that we've been pushing for for a very long time. You named the anti-corruption, strengthening anti-corruption institutions, judicial reform, corporate reform. We obviously earlier this year had the dismissal of the head of Naftogaz, which was concerning, you know, raised concerns about corporate governance. So there's a, there's been a lot on the Ukraine reform agenda for a very long time. Um, can you give us a sense of like, has Zelensky been able to deliver anything? Um, you know, you, what is his track record so far? Are we seeing Ukrainian improvements in any of these areas? Um, or can, you know what 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 are they doing to help their own case and and to advance the the Euro Atlantic aspirations that they that they have? Okay, this is a long discussion, uh, and and I'm going to try to just uh, summarize it. I'm not sure Zelensky is a reformer. Uh, you know, we're two years in. 
are almost two years in, two years in. And, uh, you know, there has been a lot of backtracking. Uh, Sandy said, you know, one step forward, two steps back. Nine months in, they dismissed their reform-minded government. Uh, and it's been pretty disappointing since then. Uh, they have a prosecutor general who uh, toes the line and salutes. Um, you know, there's not, it's, it's really hard to be enth enthusiastic about reform. And Andrea, when I go to Kiev, I talk to uh, the anti-corruption activists and I just say, my God, uh, why, why are you still at this? And they say, look, it doesn't look good if you look at the macro picture, but there are people within the government still uh, who are fighting and who are willing to do the right things. So, you know, don't expect miracles, but there can be good breakthroughs from time to time. So that, that, that's one point to keep in mind. There are not very many reformers in parliament though. Uh, and that's, I mean, that's a big issue. The, has the reform momentum left Ukraine? I don't think so. I, I think it was transformational. I think people still want a better life. But the, 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 the real question is, uh, you know, Zelensky can talk a big game. Yesterday when he was talking, he had these slides, he had a presentation, he had his minister of digital transformation who's very young, uh, very snazzy. Um, you know, he's outlined how people can get an online passport and how we can digitize everything to reduce corruption. It all sounds great but why isn't there any foreign direct investment? And you can blame Russian aggression and they've been doing that you know, for many, many years, but that's not the, the full answer. Uh, Russian aggression is part of it, COVID's part of it, but the court system doesn't work and, and investors don't have guarantees. So that, that's, that's the real problem. I, I think I, I'm more um, wondering why they bothered uh, to come here. And, and uh, I think Zelensky mentioned uh, invest in Ukraine, I think three or four times yesterday at, the, at this meeting with, uh, with think tank experts. I'm sorry, I'm a think tank expert. I don't have any money to invest in Ukraine. It was sort of a tone deaf thing to say. Maybe it's because he's uh, you know, a salesman and he's always uh, sort of trying to show uh, the, 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 the good face of Ukraine, but that seemed kind of tone deaf and not the right audience. Uh, you know, he needs to be pointing to the, to the real things uh, that he and his party have done. And remember, he has, he can, he can pass what he wants um, in parliament. Uh, he has the seats to do what he wants. Um, I, I think it's interesting. He said that he wants to make history. Uh, and this is one of the things that I've tried to challenge him on. If you want to make history, if you want to live up to the three big promises you made, uh, his promises were to bring peace to the East, to make Ukraine rich, and to get rid of corruption, do it. He hasn't done any of those things. And I think you can fault him for being too ambitious, uh, but he is not making a lot of progress on any of those goals. Yeah, I mean... Melinda knows the specifics of this better than I do, but it's basically uh, the problem, as she put it at the beginning, that we, we're not really sure that he is a reformer. So we, maybe we shouldn't be so surprised that he's zigged and zagged and done one step forward, two steps back. Uh, I worry that the Biden administration, you know, whose interest in Ukraine is already uh, less consistent and pa passionate than we would have expected or hoped, may use this as an excuse to uh, you know, freeze any further increases in military support, downgrade the importance of Ukraine and, and its Euro-Atlantic aspirations, and just try to kind of uh, keep this from spilling over into other well, arguably more important geopolitical areas. And that would be a tragedy because Ukraine's fate ultimately is sort of tied to the future of democracy and stability in, the, in Eastern Europe. Uh, I, I hope well, we continue to prioritize Ukraine, but maybe the Biden administration, and I hope maybe this is something that came out of this visit, we'll, 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 we may not know for, for some time, kind of set them some at least clear benchmarks, maybe not expect them to 
do our entire checklist. We focus on those particular achievable ends when it comes to judicial reform, such as reinstituting uh, international supervision over the selection of judges. Same thing when it comes to the corporate governance reforms, which was the problem with the NAFTA gas sacking of Kobolev. Uh, and sp other, other specific benchmarks of that kind. The anti-oligarch law sounds like a good thing, but it may just turn out to be a personal vendetta against Poroshenko uh, to get him out of the way for Zelensky's reelection. Uh, if they can use antitrust principles uh, and, and other best practices from other countries to at least create a constrictive environment for oligarchs going forward, uh, that could fundamentally change the nature of the Ukrainian economy. So they talk a good game on these things, but they don't follow through. So at least give them a short list rather than a long list and, and uh, tell them it's put up or shut up time. Yeah. Uh, just to, I mean, Melissa, I want you to jump in too, but to play devil's advocate for just a second, because Sandy, I think you're concerned that the Biden administration will use this as an excuse to downgrade or kind of put on the you know, back burner Ukraine is a, is a legitimate concern. But to put your, yourself in the shoes of the White House or the State Department, like what is the responsibility of the United States to be doing all of these things if after years and years and years, they're not implementing the reforms that they have said themselves that they want to implement. Like, so you know, like how, where is the responsibility? How long does the United States kind of keep investing and keep pushing for this and all of these things when Ukrainians themselves aren't helping themselves? I think that that's the thing I struggle with. I think occasionally I recognize Sandy, all of the reasons why Ukraine's territorial integrity and sovereignty is so important to our own security and the order. I, like, I, I understand all of that intuitively. But you you could hardly maybe blame folks in the White House and in the, in the Biden administration for not wanting to take this on when Ukrainians aren't helping your, helping themselves. Yeah. So how do how do we grapple with that? Yeah, well, there's no easy answer. I mean, it's, we do have to talk to those who don't find it intuitively uh, convincing why Ukraine's survival as an independent state, why its territorial integrity matters, even if the Ukrainians are the worst possible partners for getting all these reforms accomplished. Uh, it's bigger than Ukraine, uh, but it's not an easy case to make. People made that case about Afghanistan and South Asia. And uh, you know, Biden is now saying we have no vital national interest there. And people seem to buy that. They challenge the other things he's been saying, but not that. Uh, so uh, it, it's a tough one, but I, I, I'm not ready to give up on the Ukrainians. Uh, but we have to use what leverage we have and at the same time do what we need to do for, for our security in terms of uh, their deterrence capability against Russia. And, and of course, having a, a strategy towards Russia, which constrains its imperial tendencies and its repressive uh, behavior, uh, because Putin is hoping that we'll give him a free hand, uh, whether it's repression at home or, or resubjugation of Eastern Europe. Uh, and so we need, a, we need a stronger Russia strategy, even, even as we try to get the Ukrainians to, uh, to do what they promised and not let us down as they've done repeatedly over the last 30 years. Yeah, and we'll have a better gonna, answer than that. Yeah, and I mean, the, with the kind of imperial ambitions or kind of, I mean, we're watching also what's happening in Belarus, hopefully, to, you know, we'll look at that topic very soon. But 
this agreement potentially that there's going to be more Russian military equipment, S-400s in Belarus, and now more of these kind of integration plans that they'll be discussing in September. So that's a different issue, but it is this yeah. bigger picture. No, it's disturbing. How, I'm wondering yeah. how bad it is in terms yeah. of the details of that. Is it a temporary yeah. thing for, for Zapad or are these people yeah. in there? For we don't need to go in that direction, but it yeah. is okay. part of this bigger picture for sure. Um, so, so take your point. So Melinda, I don't know if you want to jump in and add to what Sini was saying on that last question. Sure, and I think it's a great question, Andrea. Uh, look, uh, Ukraine is more than Kiev. I think you have to bear that in mind. Uh, Kiev is not the only game in town. There's a lot of, so I spend, I try to spend as little time in Kiev as possible because uh, it depresses me, honestly. Uh, so I try to get out to Odessa, to Lviv, to Ivano-Frankivsk to see what's going on. Uh, and Ukrainians want a different life. They want a different society. They want justice and they want fair rules. And we have to remember that, that there was a sea change after the Euromaidan. They have bad leaders. Uh, you know, we don't always have great leaders either. So I th think that uh, we need to remember that uh, Ukraine is, is not just the bad political elite uh, in Kiev. Uh, I think we do need to condition assistance, not, not, for, uh, not security assistance, but we also have dumped a ton of money in Ukraine. Has it worked? Can we like stop just dumping money for a few minutes and examine what works and what doesn't? Because there's a lot of really bad programs and a lot of wasted stuff. So I think that's an area where we need to get a little bit smarter and stop spending money and try to figure out where our assistance works. We also need to be talking to other donors and making sure that we're not doing the same things as our European partners and friends. Um, the Zelensky administration, I want to give them a little bit of credit. They did manage to pass land reform. I don't, I'm not very impressed with it. I don't know anyone who is. Uh, they did pass judicial reform. I'm not very impressed with it. I don't know anyone who is. They haven't implemented it. They passed it in July. So it's still early days. Um, so they, they, they have done some things. But there's something that I find more disturbing uh, in my conversations uh, with this uh, Ukrainian White House. I see a really gross arrogance uh, that they think that they can uh, pass uh, Potemkin reforms uh, and that the Americans or the Europeans won't know the details and they will be willing to just sign off on another IMF check. I don't think so. We know the details, we follow it. We talk to Ukrainians who are lawyers and who are involved in the details uh, and you're not gonna get away with it. So that, that's one, um, you know, I, I was pretty involved in, in uh, Ukraine during the Poroshenko days, uh, but I think that the arrogance yeah, that they think they can fool their donors is even worse this time. Uh, and and I, I really don't like it. So um, yeah, th go, that, that's it. You're depressing us all. <laughs> Oh, it is. Maybe and as like kind of a final issue, you know, the how, I don't know, optimistic is probably the wrong word, but it does seem like the Black Sea as a region is perhaps inching up the administration's priority list. I'm not sure if that's true, um, but there seems to be increased concern and awareness about what Russia is doing in the region. Obviously, over the summer, you know, there was the tense situation with the British destroyer, the HMS Defender back in June. So with the Russians trying to kind of claim territorial waters around Crimea as Russian waters, a lot of efforts to kind of increase their capabilities in the region. You, you know, how, how do you think about the region as a whole? And I, I don't know, do you share that sense that the Black Sea region is becoming um, a more important issue for this administration and any kind of advice on how you would frame that issue and an approach to the wider region? It's a pretty vague question, not well formulated, yeah. but just to put it out there. Well, it's clearly, clearly becoming a much more important issue and a challenging issue. Uh, 
I mean, I, I don't know whether the administration sees it that way or not, but I hope so. I see in the uh, fact sheet that the Pentagon put out after the meeting between Zelensky and Austin uh, regarding the strategic defense framework uh, that the Black Sea is one of the sort of priority topics for, for the near term, along with cybersecurity and uh, intelligence cooperation. So the, 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 those are interesting points. Uh, but clearly the Russians are behaving more assertively and it's gonna be a challenge to maintain freedom of navigation, to assert the right of innocent passage uh, when there's a territorial dispute, uh, which isn't gonna be settled for a long time, particularly now that the Crimean platform has you know, shown broad international support for permanently rejecting Russian claims. Uh, but are we gonna have the, the, the nerve, the cojones uh, to do a freedom of navigation uh, exercise uh, in disputed waters? Uh, I'm sure there'll be plenty of people inside NATO, but also maybe inside the administration will say, we don't want to pick a fight when we have so many other things to worry about at home or dealing with China or or, or ransomware attacks, other things with, with Russia that we have to worry about. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think NATO as a whole is increasingly vulnerable. Uh, we haven't reinforced the southeastern flank anywhere near what we've done with the northeastern flank. And I think there's a case for increased rotational deployments to Romania, a bigger presence, maybe even a headquarters uh, on the Black Sea for, for NATO maritime forces. But then we have to contend with the fact that Turkey doesn't see the problem anywhere like we do. And others like Bulgaria are just extremely cautious when it comes to Russia. So what, what we can do, as opposed to what we need to do, uh, may be very different. Uh, but it definitely needs to be a priority, and it's an opportunity to integrate Ukraine and Georgia in our planning and in our overall defense strategy uh, uh, you know, as part of the preparation for their, their closer integration in NATO. But if we're not particularly enthusiastic about, about that either, that may not be a selling point for the, for the Biden administration. Yeah, just to just to jump in on that, uh, gosh, I've worked uh, with you, Sandy, uh, for years on the Black Sea, from its earliest days, and uh, and it has, uh, Andrea, it, it has ratcheted up recently, uh, certainly towards the end of the Obama administration, but but particularly uh, this past year, uh, it, it's ratcheted up in terms of importance. But it's what Sandy said: uh, there there there's problems not just with Turkey, and I will tell you, I love the Turks, uh, but they have a very specific view on. The Black Sea and their role in the Black Sea, and uh, they feel they don't need NATO to come in there and uh, do something that they're doing. I mean, it's it's been difficult. But if we're going to, it's, it's I, I think we find it easy to always put the Black Sea on the agenda. We feel that that's good enough just to say Black Sea is a priority, and we never go any further than that. It's rhetorical, and it's back to this problem with the administration: is it's this easy to roll that out rhetorically, and and there's not the cojones. As Sandy said, uh, and or the energy level, the attention level in the administration for someone to actually take that on. There are things we can do in the Black Sea. I mean, we, we've 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 come up with ten different things over time that we can do there. We have to work with the Turks, uh, and it doesn't necessarily have to be a NATO thing either. But there's things we can do. But it takes energy and focus, uh, and I just don't think uh, this administration has that for Europe generally or specific, specifically for the Black Sea over and above just saying how important the Black Sea is. 
Andre, can I try to not depress us since we've Please. been let's, a, a let's end on a more positive note. That's always a Brussels sprouts goal. We re rarely achieve it. Okay, fantastic. I can't be funnier than President Zelensky, so I'll just try to tell you a, a story or two. So I, I end up spending a lot of time on the road in Ukraine, and I have found a generation of young uh, business women and, and business women uh, in their 30s and 40s, and they're running uh, private businesses and nonprofit businesses in Ivana Frankivsk. They took an old Soviet factory and they transformed it into a beautiful, uh, it's a large, uh, it's not a mall complex, but half of it is, is for-profit and half of it is non-profit. And it's the center of the city. And if they can get this thing moving, it can be, uh, it can be implemented across the country. Uh, in Yuzhny, uh, Ukraine, which is near Odessa, uh, there is a great business team uh, that's running the largest private port in Ukraine. They don't take bribes. Uh, they don't like the oligarchs. They're part of the American Chamber of Commerce and they are, are building and expanding and kicking ass. So there's this new generation of young uh, business people that wanna do things in the new way. And that's why we should continue to care about Ukraine because eventually these people are gonna be in charge. Good point. Thank and you. They're part of a, and they're part of a broader civil society that still is alive and kicking, although they're- Very much so. They're frustrated. Yeah. They brought Ukraine pretty far since the Maidan yeah. and even before, but particularly since the Maidan. Yeah. And we need to kind of stand by them and find ways to help them, even if their leaders uh, don't fully appreciate it. Yes. So thank you for bringing us to this more positive final note. Um, it is critically important that we keep that in mind for sure. And not to conflate, like you said, Kiev for the rest of Ukraine and and all of the reasons why you both have articulated why Ukraine security and success is so critical to our own. So um, I thought this was a really fantastic discussion, long overdue on Ukraine, and hopefully um, we'll be able to do it again in the coming months to kind of take stock of where we are. Um, so thank you to both of you for taking the time and hope to have you back soon.